Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Hello, friends. Welcome to Tent Talks. My name is Chris Marchand, and this is episode number two in a series we are calling Disagree. It's a series of conversations with various people that us hosts here at Tent Talks either want to disagree with, we don't see eye to eye with these people, or, as in my case, having a conversation with someone that we want to teach us how to disagree well. My conversation today is with Dr. Anika Prather. She serves as Director of High Quality Curriculum and Instruction at Johns Hopkins Institute for Educational Policy and is the founder, along with her husband, of the Living Water School. She has written a book with Dr. Angel Parham, which has been really influential in my own life, called The Black Intellectual Tradition. I first found out about Dr. Prather through Twitter, I suppose, through various theologians, thinkers that I follow. One of the realms of my own life is classical Christian education. And if you know anything about that, especially if you live in the United States, it is particularly focused on the Western tradition. And in that case, typically means a pretty white tradition. What I have appreciated about Dr. Prother's voice within the discussions about what books we read, what historical events we speak about to our students, what I've appreciated about her is how she's willing to step into the fray of difficult conversations regarding race in America, especially in the Black tradition. Many of her talks and her writings are based out of how African people came to our country, influenced our country, made their way in a world that was against them from the very beginning. And even so, they were still influenced and shaped by Western philosophy and thought. What I've appreciated so much about her is her ability to step into difficult, often heated conversations, conversations that make many people anxious. And she does so with grace and kindness and yet firmness. Another aspect of my conversation with her has to do with my own context as a teacher of American literature and history and government. Again, this is within a classical Christian school context. One of the difficulties I have found over the years is how to teach my students about race that is sensitive enough that it acknowledges that kids just can't know everything, even as they're teenagers. And yet, this is the opportunity as they're teenagers to learn the harsh realities of American history. What I was looking for with Anika Prather was for her to help me how to have better conversations, how to better teach my students. And so this conversation today is me asking her a number of questions about how to talk about race as a white man and how do I address it with my students in ways that makes them, yes, feel uncomfortable, but yet where I can also open up to them the harsh truths of history in ways that will draw them in further rather than alienate them. (music) 
one thing she did want me to make a note of was that she is inspired by love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that if what we do is not rooted in love, then it means nothing. This is the basis of her life, and I can see it in the conversation we had for today's episode. So I have a I have a, a set of questions based around how I teach race in the classroom. The series for the podcast is about how to disagree. And so it, I didn't ask you here so much because I feel like you and I disagree, but it's almost like I, I had a situation this year. It wasn't a bad situation. It was just a complicated one. And I brought up a, a, a some 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 ideas and the kids were struggling with it. And, and I, so I'm, mm. I'm kind of, I want to ask you a few questions about that. Sure. Uh, okay. Uh, well, here, here's my first question. Then I have seen through your book on Twitter and in, in some podcast settings, I have seen you disagree with people <laughs> and, you know, somebody brings something up and I, I've seen you handle it with grace, but also mm. with firmness. And I'm just curious, what's your general approach to that? Because like, uh, like, for example, you know, it, let's say, let's say you're bringing up something really important and you're, you're kind of trying to teach a lesson and then somebody will do something like this. They'll be like, well, that's just reverse racism. And how do you not lose it on somebody is kind of maybe my first question. I have a very, it's a, it's this, this perspective I have on this whole race thing is fairly new, probably starting the last. As I got more involved with classical education, generally an African-American would think racism hurt us, like me, my people, my community only, and that um, everyone else is benefiting from it, but I'm the only one hurting or my community is the only one hurting. My perspective has actually changed to believe that we are all hurting and we are all scarred by racism in America. And that scarring, um, we, it's obvious how it hurt my community. We all know that through slavery, through oppression, through inequity, through just, you know, the racism we endure uh, regularly. I think that's pretty obvious for most. Um, and our wrestling with a loss of heritage by being taken from a homeland and bright. Like there's a lot of ways you can see how we were hurt as a people. Sometimes people struggle to hear, see how white people, white people are hurt by racism, but they've also been hurt by it too. They have been given, uh, th th I'll say those people who say those insensitive comments, they're coming from a place of being scarred by racism that gives them a very limited um, ability to empathize with someone else's experience. And they haven't been liberated enough to take a peek into another experience. So they're kind of closed off. So a lot of times those questions or those comments are coming from um, the scarring of racism in their life. And one book that really illuminated this for me, like I had the thought first and it kind of gave me a tenderness towards people. And then I read the book of um, Frederick Douglass's autobiography when he talks about the master's wife and how she went from being this beautiful, gracious woman who treated him more humane but then as she came more and more into the culture of slavery, it began to take its toll on her and she became very mean and even affected her beauty. 
And that chapter to me is just a very heartbreaking chapter. And I kind of see those white people who say those things, who think those things, remind me of the slave master's wife, so affected by slavery and the pride that's associated with it, that there's kind of a destruction of the soul. And so when they ask those questions, my desire is to hopefully be able to engage in meaningful conversation that maybe could heal even them. Not as if I'm better than them, you know, because I'm working through my own stuff with racism too. (laughs) But so now my perspective is we are all in different ways on this journey to heal ourselves from the effects of racism, to heal our bodies, to heal our minds, to heal our hearts, to heal our soul, and to be something new. You know, the scripture says that we are a new creature in Jesus Christ. And so my thinking is separate from some of the secular theories and things that are out now. I don't come from that place at all, but rooted in scripture that I guess my way of engaging is an invitation to join me in the healing process. And and that healing is going to look different for all of us because we're all affected differently, but we are all affected. And so my thinking is if I lash out in anger, if I say something mean, I may hinder someone's healing process. And then finally, there's a deep, especially when it comes to the body of Christ, there's a deep love for the church of God. And I don't care what color skin that person has. And I don't care what white supremacist or racist perspectives they may have. At the end of the day, the body of Christ are my brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I know that there's going to be a day where we all will stand before him. And I want to make sure that when I stand before him, I can say to the Lord, or he can say, you did your part to to do the work to try to bring healing to the body of Christ. So I don't think of this in terms of, oh, this is a process we're doing to heal Black people. Like, I don't think about it like that anymore. And I know that might be hard for somebody to process. I i am number one thing about healing the church, the body of Christ as a community, and then just kind of all of us going through this healing process together. Yeah, that's good stuff. Now, maybe I can speak a little bit into that as the white guy in the room. That Sometimes what I often hear and and this is what I'm trying to model, which is if if I'm going to react against and you say something that makes me uncomfortable, my reaction is to already think I know something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a white guy, what I'm trying to, to model is the, oh, OK, t- tell me more about that. So, yes. you know, so if I do hear something that makes me uncomfortable to instead of to have the reactionary kind of knee jerk thing that then stirs you up more. It's more of like, oh, oh, okay, I don't understand this. You know, and by the way, I'm hoping that someone out there, parents or my students are going to listen to this someday. So that, so I'm kind of, that, that's part of it is, so, but, but I have a, I have a question that uh, relates to that. And it's an interesting one. It's one I've heard over the years from a lot of black people, which is this, yeah. Hey, I know you got a lot of questions, but you know, you're coming at me with a lot of stuff. This is stuff I think about all the day, you know, all the time. It comes up all the time. White people need to do their own work. Uh, <laughs> and, and I've been told that a lot. I had a I had a friend that told me that a number of years ago. And I guess that's part of what I've been trying to do. I'm curious, what what's your perspective on that in, in terms of like what you expect from people? 
Like, and, and, and sometimes it's a dumb question and, you know, it's kind of acts out of ignorance, but it's kind of like maybe these questions like, why do black people dot, 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 whatever the thing is. And like, how do you approach that? Like when you kind of get a question, you're like, can't you do your own work sometimes? Um, I don't feel that anymore because number one, there was a time where they wouldn't ask the question. They would just stay in their own mm. worldview. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, and they would just stay there and be like, you should know what I, you should just see what I see. I always, I take it when white people ask me these questions. Most times I, I feel like there's a sincere desire to understand. There's a desire to build a bridge. If I just brush you off and say, you need to do your own work. Number one, that's not even how Jesus would have handled it. When Nicodemus came to Jesus asking questions that he should have known as a man who studied the law. <laughs> I don't remember Jesus ever saying, go back and study the law, learn for yourself. You know, your people have been mistreated. The Pharisees have been treat mistreating me all this time. Study the law for yourself and figure it out. He engaged. He had a conversation. Actually, that is what brought Nicodemus to him. And so my theory for engagement and all of this is because if I look at my own wisdom and my own feelings, I'm going to always deal with it in the flesh. So I feel like when I read the scripture, and it's really important whether you're saved or not saved, you can understand my context. Jesus is my context. Like I look directly at how he dealt with all types of people. And he was always gracious. He always answered their questions. He always engaged them. The only people that he gave a hard time were the Pharisees. And these were the people that actually had the attitude of, I don't hear your voice. I don't want to hear your voice. I don't want to answer your questions. You're not good enough, you know? And so Jesus had, as the son of God, the perfect son of God, who did have all the answers, who probably was very irritated with some of the decisions human beings were making. And all of his greatness still held himself to love unconditionally, to answer questions, to engage in conversations. You know, when Nicodemus says, well, how am I going to be born again? Like, do I have to crawl back in my mother's belly? Jesus could have laughed him off and said, man, go ahead with that. I don't want to hear all that. You, you should go study that so you can understand what that means. He answered his question. And I feel like in this process of having these difficult conversations we have to create safe spaces where everyone can ask the questions they want to ask or even say the things they want to say. If I, I and I, I'm I'm hoping this reciprocates. Like on the one hand, I want to create a safe space so that a white person can ask me any question, voice any opinion they have for the desire to get understanding. At the same time, I'm hoping, and it doesn't always happen, but I can say how I feel or my, ask my questions based on my experience. And that it's a safe space because, the you know, the two worlds are so different, the black world and the white world. And I hate to always put everything in the context of black and white. But honestly, if you think about it in a larger scope, I mean, black people have a narrative, white people have a narrative, Asian people have a narrative. You know what I mean? Native people have. A, we all have these narratives. And honestly, if you stand back, none of these narratives really gel. They, they exist at the same time, but they don't connect. They're just parallel universes. Hans George Gadamer, this is apart from my dissertation, he's a philosopher. He talked about the importance of questioning, like that reading that book. What was the name? Of it? Was it Being in Time? Truth and Method. I think Truth and Truth and Method, which I love the title, Truth and Method. How do we get to the, what's the method to get to the truth? It's, and he talks a lot about questions, the importance of asking questions. I want to model that for people because 
I don't think any theory or or systematic philosophy that's out right now can really heal it. It always ends up being punitive. I've asked God about why do I have an issue with how the discussions are happening? And I, re- I was reminded of the verse that says, love keeps no record of wrongs. And so the whole process of engagement is grace and love, forgiveness and truth. And I try to emulate that. And that's, that's what I saw in Jesus Christ. I try to emulate that in my engagement. Yeah. So I want to kind of try to model that a little bit by trying to raise some questions I've wrestled with, my students have wrestled with. And, and, and I think maybe part of what I want to model is the willingness to look stupid <laughs> or like, or like, not the willingness, but like, it's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to ask yes. something. I might look like an idiot. Just throw it, right? out, there. Throw it out there. Yes. Right. And then if I ask it in grace, then maybe you'll give me some grace back. Right. And this, that kind of beauty. Yes. All right. I have an initial yes. dumb guy question. You want to hear my first one? This is not a deep question sure. at all. All right. Here's okay. a, and maybe this is one that like, Maybe white people ask sometimes. Okay. Hey, do white people go to historically black colleges and universities? What is uh, is that a thing? Are we allowed in there, or how does that work? Absolutely, okay. yes. Howard had a whole bunch of professors that were white. Um, a large number. I was in the English department. A lot of the English department professors were white. I remember my father was a professor at the dental school. I all, a lot of the professors there were white. I mean, they're there, and students do come. And they're allowed to come. It's not discriminatory. Like if you have the grades and you have meet the qualifications, you can come. They don't discriminate against but based on race. So I only know about Howard because that's the only HBCU I've ever been to. And I've spent a lot of time there. And then, but from what I hear from other ones, they are there. It's what I have found. It's very similar to what happens even in my school. This is a K-12 school, not a college. We actually have found that it's not that and I hope it's okay if I say this, it's not that white people aren't welcome and aren't allowed. A lot of times white people feel very uneasy going into predominantly black spaces. Let me give you a good example. My father founded a church probably, I was two, almost 50 years ago. In that time, I could probably count on just in those 50 years, one hand the amount of times black white people have attended our church. But we have white friends. They know he's a pastor. We have white friends. I have white friends who will come visit me and hang out with me. And on Sunday, we'll find a white church to go to, won't come to church with me. And they don't, and they're not, I I these are not hateful people. These are not people I think that are racist. I think that I think the practice of that was is rooted in racism. I don't think that people who do it today are racist, but there's just been this dividing line that we don't go in, in these in these white spaces. You will more so see black people willing to venture into white spaces more because we've always had to to survive. So that's been part of our survival to be able to progress, to get the job, to get the education we need, to do the things that we need to progress. We have ventured into the places where we're the minority, so we're a little bit more used to it. And we've had to do it to survive a lot of times. I don't know if outside of just a calling from God to go and build a bridge and do that, there are very few white people that I feel see the need. I don't know if they see the need for their life progress to go to a predominantly Black space, college or church or school. And so I think that that story and then then and then when you think about Christian education, 
Um, a matter of fact, I was I met with a person not too long ago who wants to um, open a Christian school, and she was just talking about how she wants to welcome diversity. She's she's a white woman, and she talked about how growing up, her parents put her in Christian school. And she said, "I remember my parents saying, I'm putting you in a Christian school because I don't want you around too many black people." And I have heard so many people in my age bracket who have the same story. And I went to a predominantly white Christian school. They call them segregation schools. I mean, these are schools that were created so that they didn't have to desegregate initially. And so there's still that unconscious. I don't believe the majority of them consciously are like, I don't want to be around Black people. I don't feel like that's there. And people, somebody may laugh at me when I say that, but I just, when I talk to people, I don't feel like that's there, but I think in the unconscious, that's just where I'm comfortable. And so, yeah, I thought that was a roundabout way to answer your question. But that again, goes back to what I said originally, there are parallel, we are parallel universes. Our life experiences are what lead us to do certain things. So I don't have an issue going into white spaces. I went to all white schools from K-4 to 12th grade. So I will go to an all-white college. I'll work in an all-white school. I've all, I've done that my whole life. And I don't feel anything of it. I've sat up in an all-white church and just worshiped God because the preacher was good, even though they were like, why are you making so much noise in the service? <laughs> but, you know, but that's my, I'm used to being in that space. But on the other side, I don't know how how common it is in 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 white communities to venture into black neighborhoods, black schools, black colleges. Yeah, I would say it's not. Not typically. Uh, now this this leads to my next question actually. So it's kind of interesting how you kind of you, you caused the link. Okay, I'm going to introduce a concept, but I don't really want to necessarily talk about that concept because I actually want to get to something else and I and this is like my main question that I want to get to. Mm-hmm. But the thing that you kind of came close to saying is that white people latently carry racism within themselves, even if it's unconscious, like unconscious racism. And that causes white people to squirm more than almost anything. And I I can say this, though, here's the problem. As a white person, I can say, yeah, what are you talking about? Why why Mm -hmm. do I need to deny that? Mm -hmm. I grew up implicitly being told those coloreds are different mm. than us uh don't go yeah. over there because they're dangerous uh yes. they are lazy they are overly sexualized um mm-hmm. so when you say things like that i go yeah it's ingrained into the to a, exactly how white people have seen the world around them over and over and over again but boy, does that make people squirm to be told that. So I don't know. I mean, I guess I could ask you, well, how do you even react to that? I feel like the concepts are so complicated and there's so many layers to it. that, it, Like the, yeah. the, how you opened up talking about this. I just talk with people. I just try to see where they're at. But it takes a long time. But I mean, I think and if you understand. So this is why I think white people may have a hard time with the word unconsciously racist. And you said, like, you notice I kind of tried to hesitate to say that. That's a very strong word, you know, and I even struggle to say it. And I'm going to tell you why. You know, there's a scripture that says man looks at the outward appearance, right? We look at the actions and we can make determinations. Oh, this person is, you kind of judge it based on their actions. But then there's another part of that scripture that says, but God looks at the heart, right? So I will say that many white people were raised probably by people who were racist or, or just in case that's offensive to someone, 
or who had some white supremacist or racist ideas, right? Maybe maybe they're not the kind of person who's hateful or you know would want to see a black person hurt, but they have some biases and blind spots that they're wrestling with. Okay, so it could be the whole spectrum of that. They have this child now that's maybe you're being raised in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, who is in a different world than the, the segregated world that their parents were raised in, right? So they see their Black friends at school, or they're just kind of in a world that's not only, only white all the time. They can see the news. They're living in the world where Obama was president. So that child, even though the parent is trying to you know, tell them, this is my perspective on Black people, the child is probably, who grows up to be an adult, having different experiences with Black people. And so what you get, I hope this is all making sense, you get this adult who really is not racist, but they were raised by someone who is either racist or has some racist tendencies. And they are constantly wrestling with who they are. This See, this is, this is how this cancer of racism has affected all of us. And so... And so they grow up with these unconscious biases that were placed in them by a parent. And so every person has a choice to recognize that within themselves and to try to rectify that. And that's what separates those who are racist or not are the ones who are resistant to undoing some of that. And or those who would rather stay in this comfortable place of my world, my values, my worldview, my experiences are all that matters to the one who's like, I recognize something happened in me growing up that has affected my worldview. I don't know how to explain it. I know in my heart I'm not a hateful person. I know in my heart that I believe all people are created equal, but I recognize some things in myself. And I want to figure out the way forward from a biblical perspective. I want to figure out how to address that. Uh, let me say one thing uh, first. And boy, I, I, it's like, I just want to say something. And because what you said just reminded me of that before I go any further, then I got to ask my big, my big tough question. I think it was uh, your, your co-writer, Angel Aparam, she wrote it in her section, but she said something that when I read it in the book, this is, you know, the black intellectual tradition. She said something that I thought, that's what I did this year. And it was in my American literature class. And we were, I can't remember if we were talking about Phyllis Wheatley or, or Douglas. I told my kids, you know what? I, I, this is not about causing division. This is, I'm asking, I'm actually asking that you become sad. Mm, that I don't think we're sad enough, everybody. We haven't learned how to grieve over what we're reading. Don't see this as yeah. us saying, let's cause further division by talking about racism and making us mad at each other over and over and over again. Yeah. No, we just we need as a people or as peoples, yeah. however we phrase that, we need to learn how to grieve and be sad. So when she said that, I thought, OK, it helped me to know I was a little bit on the right track. Yes, yes. And that sadness is what makes you want to have the conversation. Yeah. Because you know? then you're not reactionary. You then it. you're not just reactionary. Yes. yes. You know, for me, I've come to a place where I am, I grieve constantly for my own community and what we've gone through and what we continue to go through. I'm grieving today with the latest Supreme Court decision. What happened? I'm, I'm not up on it. What's What happened? They are making, they've made it so that um, affirmative action is out of colleges. Hmm. 
And there are a lot of people who are thinking in terms, I hope this answer gets to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I'm grieving about that because I am a person that went to an all white Christian school. And when my brother and myself went into that school and a few of our friends who were black went to that school, we were expelled. We were told we could not come. Affirmative action, though, was and 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 all of these types of laws put in place that protects us from that is what helps us. Things like affirmative action are what prevents that from happening in colleges, right? And then I've been accepted into universities that I know that I know that I know I was accepted because I was black. They had not met their quota for the year, right? I have no shame in that. One thing that people struggle with is, oh, but that's not fair because it could have been a white person that was smarter who would have gotten that place. But what people fail to understand is that America, its whole being is rooted in thinking that Black people were less than. So going back to that unconscious thing we were talking about, even the person may not realize they're hateful, may look at an application and immediately have some unconscious biases that makes them choose someone else over that person. I've experienced that. So all that to say, we are at a place where people are forgetting the roots that, I don't want to say the roots of America because the roots of America are liberty, but I want to say what has gotten tangled up in the roots of America is that racist past that has really kept it from being what it should be. And I think that lamenting, looking that square in the face and grieving for my people, and then ultimately grieving for this country's struggle, the constant, because you can see what's possible. So my grief goes beyond my community. It's there, I feel that every day, but it goes to the country. like. We're still not able to do this thing. Why are we still having these arguments? Why do we want to resist this? Do you not realize that if we could overcome this, how beautiful we could be? And there's a grief for me associated. And that grief is what drives me to have these hard conversations. Okay. So another, another good, this is going to relate to what you just said. I've gotten to a place in my classroom where at certain moments, I couldn't remember, I can't exactly remember um, when it happened. When does it happen? You know, Plessy versus Ferguson or, you know, you know, uh, the lynchings in the in the 20th century, the, you know, miscegenation laws, whatever it happens. I mean, who knows? Take your pick. I've gotten to a place where I am comfortable saying, and this is a real problem for a lot of people, what I'm going to say right now, that whiteness is a problem. Hmm. that whiteness is something that we should, uh, that white people need to learn how to acknowledge their whiteness and learn how to fight against it. Now, hmm. when I say that, immediately it goes to, I'm a problem. I'm a, as a white person, I'm a problem. Yeah. And so then I have yeah. to figure out, then I have to backpedal, not, not, no, not necessarily backpedal, but just more like, oh, okay, I hear, I, I hear how you hear that, young people. I totally get that. And then they say something like this. They say, well, why don't you just say white supremacy then? Because they can be on board with that. They'll be like, yeah, I'm on board with white supremacy. And yeah. I, I, actually, I had a student. So I, I do uh, at the end of the year in my American history class, they present on Supreme Court cases. And yeah. somebody presented on Loving versus Virginia. 
Mm. And they, I can't remember the exact quote, forgive me, but they quoted a law that the law itself was rooted in whiteness. Yes. And it wasn't just like, no, not just interracial marriage. It was like, listen, the white people cannot marry all y'all other people. (laughs) I was taught that in my Bible class as a child. I was taught that at a, a, a really large Christian school back in the 70s and 80s. We would sit in Bible class and our Bible teachers taught it in that exact way mm. that white people should not marry, should not intermingle with black people. That somehow, and then in her next breath, she taught because black people were made to be inferior. She also taught, and I and I say this all the time, she also taught that, but slavery helps to save us, helps to redeem us. And, and people are still throwing that stuff out there today. They're still, and so- so when so I think what's good to do here, and I'm hoping somebody will listen, is let's talk about what we mean by white and black. Okay. For the longest time, I would not refer to myself as a black woman. When I started studying classics, is when I changed it because Kush and the Ethiopians and Herodotus described the Ethiopians as beautiful black people. And so blackness took on another meaning. So me, so you're talking in- about blackness as a really old term. Is that what you mean there? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay. But, but, but before I, and this was recent. So before I got to the place of feeling comfortable using the word black, I wouldn't use it. I would use African descent, African-American. I would call white people, European-Americans, Caucasian, or as my professor from Howard used to say, the people who refer to themselves as white. And, and the reason why I struggled is because if we go back, in history of that whole concept of white and black, it was used to set up good and bad. Right. If you're white, you're good. Not a single drop. Black. And, and also not a single drop, right? Like, you know, it's like, yes. what, what percentage yes. are we yes. talking about here? And yes, one drop of it, you are yeah. like my, my, my husband has a distant relative. I think it's his great, great grandmother, honey. His great, great grandmother was a white woman. And somehow she made another white woman angry. And the white woman she made angry went around the town telling everyone she was really black. Because, you know, people could pass the mulattoes and be mixed because you were the master's children. And no one would believe her. And they had a whole court case to prove that she was really black. They found her guilty of being black and sold her into slavery. A white woman. And that's how my husband's family... And I think she ended up marrying a black man. And that's how my husband's family came into being. And so this, this notion of there was a time and people need to own this. And, 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 and this is just a part of history. We can't deny it that black was considered evil and inferior and less than and dark and evil. And white was considered angelic and good and better and supreme and clean. And you began to see that in the movies. The white character, were, you know, the good character was white, black character were black. There's a movie that came out, um, Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation. Now, Birth of a one? Nation. The old one? The yeah, old, yeah, yeah, the yeah. old yeah. Birth of a mm-hmm. Nation. That, if you, if you can go, you can find it on YouTube, anyone who's listening. If you look up Birth of a Nation, that really set the tone for black against white. White being supreme, black being inferior, right? It That... That sent shockwaves and just, it was the first feature length, one of the first feature length movies in America. And it sets up the, and everybody's in, everyone who's starring in the movie is white, but the bad guy is painted black. 
and he wears and he's and he's black and the good people are dressed in white this is why the Ku Klux Klan wore white this is not to make anyone feel inferior but that's where the concept of whiteness and blackness actually got to start here in America you know that that dichotomy was there what happened though over time is both sides began to embrace it as something good black people embraced black power with James Brown's I'm black and I'm proud and the, the Black Panther. We, instead of running from the term black, we embraced it and gave it a new definition and a new meaning. And now we see it as the onyx, the Black Panther or anything beautiful and black, right? I still struggled with that history. So I still would embrace it for knowing that. And then white people too have embraced being white as leave it the beaver. Right. My brother and I used to watch Leave it to Beaver until one day we were like, wait a minute. Segregation was going on. Right. Like there's nobody black in the show. The white neighborhoods. My husband talks about when they were mo when they moved, you know, how it was difficult. They did not want black people in the neighborhood. We see the story raising in the sun. Keep the black people out. So the concept of whiteness, it changed to we embrace our whiteness because it's the best. It's good. It's clean. It's angelic. It's right. And if we keep the black people out, it won't defile us. That's in its history. That's not something I'm making up or anything. And we and a lot of people may not even realize that history of black and white in America, where that concept comes from. So when we going back to your concept of there's a problem with whiteness, in case anyone is curious, you're not saying whiteness as in the skin color or the person themselves, the human being. You're saying the concept of whiteness as something that's better than, that's more supreme than, that can't be defiled by what is black. That concept of whiteness is the problem that we can't seem to get rid of. And just to interject a little bit, and you can go off of this, is what I'm trying to introduce in an American history class is how that concept of whiteness is in everything. And, yeah. and, and one thing you said, yeah. you said it a, a few minutes ago, and it's something that I really struggle with because I know what you mean. And I, and I feel this conflict, which is at its root. America is a white supremacist nation. Now, is there liberty and freedom at the root as well? And yes. And, and maybe this is where, uh, I don't know, I, I, Langston Hughes, uh, America, can America be America again? Uh, yes. That was That's a really powerful poem to me because it's a call for America to be what it claimed it was from the very beginning. Can you change into it? Mm. And... The thing is, though, is I think white people just want to push on past it and they can't see that. No, 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 no. Sorry, but there is white supremacy embedded into the Constitution. And that's why then we have to say, OK, we've created this category that whiteness is a problem. And it's not the person, like you said, it's not that child, beloved child of God, that you are the problem. No, yes. It's that it, it's it's been in there and then we're trying to reconcile with that. I mean, there are some people, uh, this is another controversial topic, I'll even get into it, but there, are, there there's a, a, a an interesting book, fascinating book, on how the Second Amendment is rooted in uh, Southern slave patrols to mm -hmm. round up uh, mm -hmm. uh, slaves, that, yes. that, yes. that the, the, the so-called freedoms to arm yourselves is, is actually rooted mm -hmm. in racism. People don't want to hear that. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how you address that. But for me, I, I kind of wade into the maelstrom of, of American history and I try to introduce some of these concepts and it's tough. It is very hard because like you, like I said, it's tangled in the liberty. 
The liberty is true. Now, this is one reason why Frederick Douglass would not throw out the Constitution or throw out America is because he was able to read what it was trying to be. But his speeches were saying, let's untangle this mess from what it's supposed to be. And we should want to do that. You know, we should want to do that. And I, when you were talking, I was um, thinking about, a, I was thinking about a, a couple of things to really prove my point. A lot of times people will say, oh, race doesn't matter. I'm colorblind. Jesus loves all of us. But you'll go to that church and all of the Sunday school material has everyone in the Bible depicted as white people. Somebody posted a picture on um, Facebook the other day that showed heaven with all of these angels looking down on earth. And it was something like, you know, the angels are watching over you. And I was just like, why are all the angels white? Why is it when we think of angels, like if you close your eyes, we all like when you think of an angel, you see them as a white person. Why? Because the Sunday school materials we grew up on only showed angels as white people. Even today, there's a there's a, a series of um, I don't like to call out names of companies because I don't want that's not why I'm here. So I just say the information. And if it applies to you, I'm praying that God you know, children of yourself accordingly. But there's a, a children's biblical cartoon that I, I I still let my kids watch it from time to time. I just explain the concerns and I've even written them and they're trying to get a little better, but their early movies or cartoons, everyone was white in the Bible. Everyone was white. The angels were white. Jesus was white. David was white. And, and the problem with that is this, is that if we really believe the Bible is true, is a true book of history, then we would we would depict it based on how the geography is described. There. It's kind of like, I'm not going to make George, even though I know Hamilton did it, <laughs> I'm not going to make George Washington a black man. I'm not going to make Abraham looking like look like you know Osama bin Laden. Like we know where they're from, so we know the color of their skin. The, and the Bible does the same thing. It says where all these different characters were from. We know when the Greeks and Romans were, so we know they were probably white. They looked fairly white. We know that, but some characters were in Africa, Middle East, and Israel, and Egypt. And so they would have more tan tone. But our country has repeatedly depicted the characters of just scripture as all white. That, that, and we're, and we still, Christian education curricula still struggles to show diversity. Now, I also am against making it all black. I don't think that's right either. Just follow whatever is listed in the book and make the characters look like that country. But we don't want to do that. But then at the same time, we'll say God is colorblind, but we won't add color so that people of color can recognize the Holy Scriptures also are about my community. And so that's a that's a real, like you, anyone listening to me, no matter how much you want to resist what we're saying, you can sit back and say, you know what? You're absolutely right. That curriculum that I'm using for my homeschool program or that curriculum at this Christian school my kids are attending, there are hardly any people of color in any of the Bible stories. This That alone is a sign of where we are today. And so that mentality, and 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 I will tell you right now, I don't believe there's anyone saying, I'm going to only make all these characters white because I don't like black people. They're not thinking that. They're just, it's a force of habit. That's what I mean by the unconscious. They're just, it's, the assumption is they're white, you know? And so we have to repent of that. Lament and repent of that. Now, so this that's actually, I have a kind of follow-up question to this. Like, as a someone called white person, it's kind of funny. Uh, I, I always like to tell this story because I never know what to do with it. I was in a Starbucks once, and this, this black guy came up to me, and he goes, you're Moorish. And uh, he called me a Moor. And, and I was like younger and I was like, what? Like, what does that mean? I didn't know what I didn't know what he was talking about. And I, now I know a lot more about what that means. 
Um, what, what I'm trying to say is, is, of course, I'm white. I'm culturally white. But boy, you know, I'm a mixture. I'm, I'm from the Mediterranean, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. uh, and so I got I got other stuff in me, too. <laughs> um, anyway, that's that's a whole that's a, that's yeah. a side point. Yes. But how do like, again, my students, Mr. Marchand, why don't you just call that white supremacy? Because they didn't want to call it whiteness. And I guess I'm just curious, as an educator, do you have any guideline, guide guide me? Because I'm at the place, I guess I'm where you were at uh, 20 years ago or whatever, where I'm like, why am I calling myself white? I don't like that anymore. I'm a European American. That's okay. That's not that that is that's not even woke. I'm just like that's just what I am. I'm a European American, um, and I and that whole woke. I mean, we can we can do a whole podcast on that one if we wanted to sometime. But I guess I'm curious. Right. What are your what are your thoughts about that? It, just addressing this concept of whiteness within the classroom. Well, I, I think I think again when you when you say white supremacy sounds like more of an adjective and not a person. Mm-hmm. I think the struggle, and I, I have a little bit of sensitivity to it especially as a teacher who wants to be one who creates a safe space for all children. And I have, my school has had white students. I've, I've taught white college students and everything. I would not want to ever, there's, okay, there's a scripture that tells us to not do or say the things that would offend or hurt other people, especially if you know it. So I'm constantly looking for how can I still share this truth without saying something that triggers people or completely puts the walls up. So I think when you say white supremacy, it helps them distance them. It helps people distance themselves from that. They don't feel guilty of it. When you just say the word white or whiteness, it gets a very, it gets a lot more closer to home. It almost seems like a person you're accusing as opposed to I call it a demon, as opposed to a demon or a something evil that's not part of the person that we can all stand against. And I think I don't use that term when I'm speaking. I don't say whiteness is a problem. And I don't do that because I recognize that gets right into, you know, like when I say, you know, love believes the best and doesn't keep any record of wrong. When you're moving forward in love, you do try to, you can speak truth without pointing the finger because the devil is the accuser of the brethren. So if if I go around saying those terms that make people feel accused of something that, they're, that they are guilty of, then I feel like I'm placing myself as a judge, you know? And so, and Jesus didn't do that. He didn't, he treated everyone like a human being. He didn't, when the Pharisees said the adulterous woman, to him, he was, she was just the woman. Who was hurting and he treated her with respect. And so even with my pain that I've gone through and still go through in racism and my frustrations with racism, I was thinking the other day about how um, there was an article I read, for example, that talked about how one of the main, one way that um, white police officers will find an excuse to stop a black driver is by saying that their car sent tree is blocking their rear view. I saw, I saw I, that in a video. I saw a video. That's happened to me. That's happened to you? That's happened to me. Oh yeah. That has happened to me. That has happened to me. And it was, just, I was so irritated. I'm like, really? Why would they make these things if they're not legal? Like you're just making up stuff. And he gave me a ticket for my, tr- my car century that I bought at the car dealer thing. And so these are my real, these are my real life experiences. So I have my frustrations. So it's not that I'm denying that. But I still want to treat people like a human being. 
because Jesus treated people like human beings. So I I stay I stay away from words like whiteness is a is or white people. I don't like to say it like that. Sometimes I'll say things like there are some you know white. I try to use these not so words that are not so generalizing, and then and then instead of saying things like whiteness is a problem, I'll say sin is a problem. You know, now my change, my other change in saying it like that is um, my son, when he was very little, um, we had just watched some movie about slavery or whatever. And he said, mommy, why did white people create slavery? And that's when I recognized that I was giving also a false narrative because I was presenting my racist experiences, my knowledge of history and black history in a way that made white people the, the root of all evil in the world. Right. And so I looked at him. I got on my knees and I said, oh, my goodness. Why did we didn't create race, uh, uh, slavery? I said, slavery's been around since the beginning. I said, sin. I said, when the, and I went through this whole story. I said, when, the, when, when Lucifer, before he became the devil, was in heaven, he became prideful. He wanted to overthrow God. He was kicked out of heaven. But he brought that spirit of pride to the earth. And that meant he he came into mankind and gave them desire to overthrow other people. And so throughout human history, you see humanity always trying to overthrow people. And then I went through the history of slavery. I said, remember when they read the story about Moses and the children of Israel? Those were black people. They were practicing segregation because they wouldn't let the children, if they made the children of Israel live in one part. You had to live in Goshen or whatever. You know, I said, so not to downplay what I've gone through in America at all. But I, I kind of went, I had to do this for myself and for him that the sin of pride is at the root of whiteness, right? And as a believer, now I know in the world we can't say sin because not everybody's a Christian, but for my conversations with the body of Christ, I will say anytime we as a people feel like we are better than someone else, whether you're black or white, that is sin and that gives place to racism or bitterness or anger. And then you're not relating to people from a godly space. And so that's how I articulate it in a church context. If I'm not in a Christian context, I'm coming from a place of Martin Luther King's phrase, only love can drive out hate. And so if I'm, and and I think everybody can identify that, whether you're a Christian or not. And so if only love can drive out hate, then I'm going to be careful about the words that I choose so that doesn't reflect my own bitterness and also doesn't cause you to shut down because you feel like I'm accusing you of something. The only thing that we want to do is inspire people to go inward and to think about where's my heart? Where's my mind? What needs to change? We all need to change. And what can I do to build the bridge and, and to do things differently than those who came before me? Mm-hmm. I don't, did that, I hope that answered your question. It was long. No, it's good. It's really tough. I, I think where I feel conflicted about it, and it's really good that your, your son's story is really good what what I come up with um, from students, what the reactions that I get typically is that white people didn't invent races. I'm sorry, white people didn't invent slavery, but they use that as an excuse to point that back to look at the Africans they were selling. Yep. They were selling yep. their own people. Yep. And yep. again, I am actually all for a mutual repentance, mutual understanding of, of the sin of all of humanity. I, I'm I'm on board with that. But my problem with it is I've always seen it as white people making an excuse for their own yes. sin. You're right. 
And yes. that's where maybe that's maybe as maybe that's my job is to, to call that well, out. Well, the, to call that out. Well, that you call that out and you educate. So now let's talk. So now this is the other thing though. So once because truth, the truth will always stand, right? The truth of God or the truth, period, the truth of history will deal with all that. Because at that point, then you go into a comparison. Well, let's how let's look at the slavery of America. It is actually the worst there was. And that's not something I'm making up. No, right. You're right. White people did not invent slavery. But no other country enslaved people simply because of the color of their skin or what they thought was the color of their skin. All right. Even different um, slave narratives talk about, <laughs> there's, a, there's a story, Ola Uda Equiano, you know, he wrote his own slave narrative. I think it was him. He talks about how <laughs> we didn't even treat our slaves this bad. So they, <laughs> they own slaves. <laughs> but it's true. Shadow slavery was horrific, right? And you can say that without, it's just the truth. Let, that, that's even a project you could do. As a, let's compare different types of slavery. And, and let's compare, like, even the children of Israel owned slaves, but there was a rule. You had to let them free in seven years. America, you had to keep your slaves for the lifetime of the slave and their children. Like, And so that way you can get into it. So they can't use that as a scapegoat. Yeah. And, and one parallel to this that I and I've heard this before as well, which is, well, it was just the ways of the time and the, the world that as it mm -hmm. was. And I've, I've wrestled with that. And I thought about that. And I guess I have one one thing that I just like say back to that, which is but these were Christians or supposed Christians yeah. that they had the Bible. They had the Sermon on the Mount like they they had the narrative of the of the slaves being freed from Egypt. The whole the whole Old yeah. Testament narrative is slaves being freed. So like the, that they wouldn't let the slaves read too. They would say, they well, could, of course they would. You know? Yeah, right. So again, I, I don't I don't know what I do with that other than I don't know that I can buy the well. It was just the ways of the time. You know, it was the way it was. Because and anyway, how how do you respond to any of that? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I like the point you're making. Is I mean, I think one thing people are afraid of doing because the founding fathers are almost idolized in this country is we don't want to hold them accountable for their mess. We want, you know, but they did this. They wrote these beautiful documents and they they did something no one else has ever done. You know, they only want to worship that. And they there is a fear of holding them accountable. You know, we don't want to hold Thomas Jefferson accountable for writing what he wrote about black people in his notes on the state of Virginia. We don't want to we don't want to talk about how he had a mistress that he made a young black girl that he made be his mistress. You know, I've even heard white people say, but she wanted it like she was happy there. He treated their children well, like that kind of foolishness. He was really a pedophile. And and see, all, all that I just said, I'm just stating historical fact. I'm not. That's the point I'm trying to make, I think, is that in these discussions, when we start throwing around labels and terms and generalizations, that's where we get a problem. But if we just stick to historic fact and truth, then we can have real conversation. So, okay, you want us to respect Thomas Jefferson? That's fine. We we know that he wrote a really interesting letter um, with Benjamin Banneker. They had an exchange because Benjamin Banneker was very frustrated because Thomas Jefferson continued to promote this idea that Black people are inferior, that we smell, that we're dumb, that we're just not competent beings. This was what our founding father promoted. When Phyllis Wheatley wrote her book, he was going to say there's no way a Black woman could have written that. Like he really did not. And he never changed. He never repented of that. Right. Does that take away from the fact that he wrote the Declaration of Independence? Nope. 
Does that take away from the fact that he helped inspire the Constitution? No. Does it take away from the fact that he had some meaningful things to say about this country and what it should be? Absolutely not. But we know that he died without ever making that right. And we need to own that. And we need to have that conversation. And we need to stop thinking that he should be idolized without accountability. You know, George Washington, he was actually a man of really great integrity. You don't have as many stories as Thomas Jefferson has, but you definitely have this, you you know that he saw us as inferior. Why? Number one, he owned it. He, should, he owned slaves. Also, when he died, people said, when he died, he freed the slaves. That's not true. He didn't free the slaves when he died. He may, he said, I want them freed when my wife dies. That's very different. And what the wife did was, well, they might kill me. So when he died, she separated all the families. And so these are slaves that had been living with the Washingtons for decades. When he died, she sold them all away, some to very cruel homes. So he, in all of his integrity, did not value human life. Even the very ones that literally would drive him to his presidential meetings, the ones who helped him get dressed in the morning, the ones who cared for them, him. He didn't take any care to make sure that when he died, they would be set free and cared for. You know, And so does that take away from him being a really great first president? Does it take away from the fact that he helped win the Revolutionary War? No, you can still sell those stories. But he was a flaw. He was a flawed human being. And so we've got to stop idolizing these founders and recognize that these founders had some white supremacist racist ideas that were in their hearts when they were creating the country. And in fact, when they created the country, they really did not believe that freedom belonged to us because they did not feel we were free. I mean, they actually believed that Black people were livestock. Like, can we just process that for a minute. These gentlemen believed we were livestock. Let me just, I want to really paint a picture of what that really means so people can understand. I used to, I'm kind of getting out of it. I used to raise Angora rabbits. I had about, I had way too many. And Angora rabbits are a wool source. You can use their wool to spin yarn and things like that. And I named my little rabbit farm, beloved farm and fiber or whatever. And what I would do is I had them, they had their whole little playroom in our basement. I'm going somewhere with this. Just follow me. Cause I want you to picture livestock and how livestock is treated. So you can understand. And um, I would breed them and I would keep the ones that had the best wool and sell. So I would take a mommy rabbit and a daddy rabbit, breed them and take their babies and say, I'll keep this one. I'm gonna sell this one away. Right now, the mommy rabbit loved her baby. Like whenever I would go in to take the baby, they would just have a fit, right? But I'm like, this is rabbit. It doesn't matter. She she doesn't feel anything, and and you know, it's just an animal. That's the exact way black people were bred as slaves. So when we talk about how could they separate families, because it, we were we were like the rabbits. We were just livestock, just like a farmer would separate would breed cows and take the calves and sell it to this farmer down the road and decide, oh, I don't want the daddy cow anymore. I'm gonna sell it down to the farm down the street because he needs a new calf. He needs a new bull on his farm. That's how. That's why they separated black people and their families because we were just no different than a farm dog, a, a cow, or whatever. So all of that mentality was in the heart of the founding fathers. Of many of them, not all of them, but many of them. Now, there were some like John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Benjamin Franklin, who did not see us that way. They may have had some blind spots, but they definitely saw us as some form of a human being, which is that's a whole nother story. But many of the people who led and wrote up the Constitution, they did write this beautiful document about freedom, but it was not intended for us. 
So freedom was real. America was really for the to be a place of liberty, but that that but black people did not count. The Star Spangled Banner, the Constitution, what did not apply to livestock. And so that's foundational to our history. That's not me being bitter. That's just the truth of history. And what has happened is from that root, and because we constantly try to fight that truth about our roots, continues to infiltrate how things happen here from time to time. Because you have people that have still that still remain unhealed from this racist heritage. And they are continuing to make decisions in our country. And they haven't gone through that healing process. And so that's why we're here. And that's why having these hard conversations, me creating a safe space where people can say things and ask questions so they can get to understanding and me finding a safe space where I can say, this is what my experience is as a black woman. I have been told that I was not allowed to drive through white neighborhoods because I don't belong there, even though I lived in it. You know, I had a police officer give me a $300 ticket and I had, I took that man to court and I won. So I'm not coming from a place of not, this is not my experience. Like sometimes when I'll talk, people will accuse me. Oh, you're just saying what everybody else in your community says. No, 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 no. I have actual real life experiences with this. Is my experience like everyone else's? No, but I have lived it through and through in my schooling and in my everyday life as a black woman in America. And so, but I feel like the best way to move forward with those experiences and to seek a mutual healing is to create relationships rooted in love and grace. And we have these meaningful conversations to work it out. Well, I feel like I'm just beginning to learn from you. So I thank you for this conversation. And uh, there's there's more questions, but that's kind of what happens, right? Is you sometimes you just have to be like, okay, that's good for today. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll come back to it another time. So I really appreciate you, you delving in with this, delving into this with me and may the conversation continue. Absolutely. And thank you so much for giving me a safe space to have this conversation. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. I wanted to offer a reflection as this conversation had to conclude. I don't know. How did you feel? I personally felt like I could have just gone on and on asking her questions. I'll be honest with you. I only asked her about a third of the questions I had written down. And every single time I asked her a question, it branched out to other types of questions, other areas. Uh, We had to keep digging deeper and trying to understand the terminology, trying to understand where each each of us was coming from. And I have to admit, there are some areas where I still feel very much unsettled. I feel like I have so much to learn from Dr. Prother and other uh, black academics, black thinkers, black leaders, black ministers. I am at the beginning of my learning and maybe I always will be. At the same time, I do feel like there were some areas of contention and in the moment, I, I didn't figure out what to say to her, how to respond. In the weeks since my conversation with her, I I did think of some other responses or other ways of asking her questions back. 
And actually, this makes me reflect on the first episode in this series, where Simon, who was talking to us about nonviolent communication, encouraged us to learn how to listen and to ask good questions. So I wanted to get in, in this conversation with Dr. Prother, I, I wanted to get to the bottom of what does whiteness mean and what is what are its effects on American people? And she said some answers that I was not expecting. What that leads me to do in the future is to keep on asking questions and to keep reading and to keep educating myself. There's so much more to learn. There are other voices to hear from as well. So the conversation continues and I'm hoping maybe there will be other conversations with Annika along down the line. She's actually kept those lines open with me and she said she would love to talk again. As I said in my introduction, please check out her book with Dr. Angel Parham called The Black Intellectual Tradition. It is definitely worth a read. You can also check out her podcast called Reclaiming Our Canon or Cush Classics. Both of these podcasts deal with thinking about classical education, um, the black intellectual tradition, and uh, there's all kinds of really interesting conversations on both of those podcasts. And uh, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Annika Prather, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.